Okay, I make it 5.30. Uh, that means it's time to begin. Um, let me welcome you all this evening to what is the second meeting of the Aristotelian Society this term. Um, we're very fortunate to have Colleen Murphy with us uh, from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. She's come all the way from Urbana-Champaign to be here uh, today, which is a great honour for us. Um, and Colleen, uh, she has uh, three departmental affiliations in, uh, as far as I can see, in Urbana-Champaign. Or does philosophy and political science go together? No, does that no. count as one? No, it's sort of courtesy so appointments versus... Okay, so it's home. law, it's philosophy and it's political science. So that seems to me quite an achievement. Um, and Colleen has written this book on the conceptual foundations of transitional justice, which is her speciality. Um, she does work, broadly speaking, in ethics, in law, in politics, but uh, transitional justice is her particular <coughs> specialism. Um, and this evening, she's going to talk to us um, about some issues that arise in connection with transitional justice. And I believe the paper is called on principled compromise, or is it principled compromises? Compromises. Compromises. OK. Colleen, over to you. Thanks. So first, thank you very much to the Aristotelian Society for the invitation to be here. It's um, a great honor. And um, I, I want to thank Helen as well for the very kind introduction, and all of you for taking time to be here. <coughs> So I wanted to begin by giving um, an outline of where I want to go in my talk. The first is to provide a sketch of the context that I'm interested in specifically in thinking about compromises, especially for philosophers. Um, transitional justice is not always familiar, so to give a sense of what, what societies, what contexts I'm interested in is, is often helpful. I'm then going to talk about what I've characterized as four circumstances of transitional justice, so four features you find. Um, across transitional societies that differ in many ways, but at a certain level of abstraction, share these four features. And then talk about three moral challenges, three moral complaints that often arise in these contexts with respect to the decisions that are made for how past wrongs will be treated. And then turn to thinking about principled compromises and the sorts of criteria we can use when thinking through and evaluating whether choices for dealing with past wrongs are justified or not. So to begin with the context of interest. So there have been dozens of societies around the world that have attempted um, in recent decades to transition away from extended periods of conflict and or repression. So you can look at every part of the globe to find the phenomenon of interest. You can look at South America, we're following um, periods of military juntas and then a transition to democracy in places like Argentina. South Africa following the end of apartheid uh, in 1994 and the transition to multiracial democracy there. More locally, uh, we can talk about Northern Ireland in 1998 with the Belfast Good Friday Agreement ending the Troubles. You can look at um, the countries that comprise what was called the Arab <coughs> Spring, so Egypt following the fall of Hosni Mubarak, Iraq following the toppling of Saddam Hussein, and a, of a special salience right now is Colombia as it attempts to navigate an end to 50 plus years of conflict between the Colombian government and the FARC. 
So characteristically during these periods of conflict and repression, human rights abuses are committed and often on a very large scale. So just looking specifically at the case of Colombia, which has a population of 48 million, according to the state's victims unit since 1985, you've had 7 million who've been forcibly displaced, hundreds of thousands killed, tens of thousands either enforcibly disappeared or kidnapped or subjected to rape and other forms of sexual violence or tortured. And so transitional countries over the, the past decades have come up with a set of processes that are characteristically used either in isolation or in combination um, to deal with legacies of wrongdoing during these periods of transition away from conflict and repression. So you find criminal trials adopted either domestically or at the international level with ad hoc tribunals like the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia or the, the relatively newly created International Criminal Court. Hybrid tribunals are also used. You've got truth commissions, which are official bodies that are established with a mandate of documenting a specified set of human rights violations committed over a delimited period of time. You've got amnesty provisions, which remove prospects for criminal and or civil liability for a specified group, either unconditionally or under certain conditions. <laughs> Reparations programs, public apologies, memorials, as well as policies of lustration, whereby individuals are barred from serving in certain public offices um, for a specified period of time, either permanently or for a certain um, time frame. And so the question that has preoccupied um, a lot of my work and my interest, um, both in the book that I wrote and in what I'm building on in talking here today about principled compromises, is the question of, of how should societies deal with their legacies of wrongdoing in this particular context of attempting to transition to peace or away from conflict. Um, so what should we think of, another way of putting it, as the metrics for moral success? Um, and I just want to flag here um, something that I'm going to come back to when I talk about the challenges, but there is deep and profound disagreement, both among scholars and, importantly, among citizens, over the answer to this question. So the question of what should count as success from the moral point of view, or the conditions under which we can judge justice to have been done with respect to dealing with past wrongs, um, has a real practical purchase in the context of transitional justice in ways that often questions philosophers take up don't immediately. Or, um, so the actual political trajectory of a community can be affected by judgments of citizens or officials with respect to the justifiability of the choices that are made in terms of the processes that are selected for dealing with past wrongs. Um, and so to try and get at why there's such deep disagreement, practically as well as theoretically, I want to turn to what I talk about in my book as the circumstances of transitional justice to begin to give us a deeper sense of the context and the moral disagreement that arises there. Okay. To begin with just a footnote to why I'm, I'm talking about context, um, despite the, the search for general principles. Um, so, for the philosophers in the room, all of you are familiar with 18th century philosopher David Hume, who very famously argued that 
um, a set of circumstances of justice generate a particular problem for communities to address, which principles of justice help communities have guidance in trying to um, resolve. Hume's particular conception of the problem that was salient for communities concerned the stabilization of property claims. And so he asked, what is it and what are the background conditions that make the question of stabilizing property claims an issue? And he gave a number of conditions, one of which was um, limited scarcity of goods. So the thought was, in context of extreme abundance, um, the problem of stabilizing property claims is not really relevant, doesn't really matter. And by contrast, in context of extreme scarcity, the search for principles to guide the stabilization of property claims will ultimately be futile, won't have the kind of um, practical guiding character that you want in context where, where scarcity reaches a certain extreme. And so what I take from Hume is the basic insight or the thought that principles or criteria of justice are to some extent context dependent, that they're formulated in response to a particular problem or question that a community faces. And so if we want to understand the question or problem confronting transitional communities to which metrics for evaluating processes must be responsive, we have to first understand these contexts. So that's the sort of motivation for why I'm talking about these four circumstances next. So the first circumstance of transitional justice that I discuss is what I call pervasive structural inequality. So here what I'm interested in is the basic structure for interaction among citizens and between citizens and officials, so horizontally and vertically, um, as defined by institutions of different kinds as defined by legal institutions, political institutions, social and cultural institutions, economic institutions, et cetera, where basic terms for interaction can be unequal in two different respects, in virtue of how they establish differential restrictions on different groups of citizens in terms of what they have uh, a genuine opportunity or effective freedom to be able to do or become that's using the language of Amartya Sen and Martha Nussbaum in terms of capabilities. So the genuine opportunity or effective freedom to be educated, to be employed, to be recognized as a member of your political community, to participate in institutions. There are restrictions or unequal freedom exists across different social groups within a community, as well as differential effective freedom to shape and define the institutional rules and norms themselves. So every society has some degree of structural inequality. What characterizes um, transitional communities is the pervasiveness of it, where inequality reaches a level that we can talk about questioning the legitimacy of the institutional order itself. A very vivid and clear example of the kind of institutional pervasive inequality that I have in mind is, of course, apartheid South Africa, where there was a very explicit um, legalized infrastructure of racial oppression, where different freedoms existed for groups of citizens and what they could effectively do and become, and the ways in which they could participate according to specified rules and norms. So in addition to this background condition of pervasive structural inequality, what you also find is what I call normalized collective and political wrongdoing. So here I'm interested in violations of human rights, 
that become normalized in an empirical sense. They become a basic fact of life around which citizens need to orient their conduct. So the anticipation of being arrested if you speak out against the government, regardless of whether um, some freedom of speech is, is technically recognized by law, is something you need to take into account when thinking about what you're going to tweet. The anticipation of certain forms of um, torture or severe ill treatment should you be arrested is, again, something that shapes how you're going to think about whether or not you're willing to take the risk of speaking out when the consequences of doing so may be of certain kinds. Um, so one, two consequences of the normalization of wrongdoing, the fact that this becomes a basic fact of life for citizens around which conduct has to be oriented, um, two things follow as a result of this. One is that in contexts of transition, often the categories of perpetrators and victims are not mutually exclusive, but overlap and apply to the same individuals or groups at once. And also it has as a consequence that the relevant moral categories of interest when thinking about both understanding how wrongdoing became normalized and for such a strong period of time and what to do when thinking about processes for dealing with such wrongs is that the categories need to be expanded beyond just looking at perpetrators and victims to thinking about those who are collaborators in or otherwise complicit in injustice, bystanders to injustice, beneficiaries of injustice, or harmed in a secondary or derivative way. The wrongdoing of interest is often collective in the sense that individuals are targeted in virtue of a particular group membership and that they are victimized by those who are acting as collectives or groups. And the political nature of wrongdoing comes in two respects. One respect is the fact that wrongdoing often implicates the state, maybe perhaps not exclusively, but in various contexts, contexts predominantly. So state agents are the ones who are implicated in or giving permission to others to commit the wrongs that processes of transitional justice may take up. And the second sense is that understanding why normalized wrongdoing occurs ultimately has to appeal to or be based on an understanding of the political goals and objectives that certain patterns of wrongdoing had as part of their overarching purpose. Defending a regime that's being contested, contesting a regime that's viewed as unjust, acquiring land or territory, or defending territory when it's being contested in these various ways. The wrongdoing of this kind in terms of normalization takes a wide range of forms. Um, some of the forms that were listed at the beginning of my talk when talking about Colombia. But again, despite the variation in the particular form that wrongdoing takes, it has these uh, features that I mentioned above. So the first two circumstances, um, pervasive structural inequality and normalized collective and political wrongdoing, often in practice interact in, in mutually reinforcing ways. So you can have pervasive structural inequality being the grounds for delegitimizing claims or entitlements of, certain, of members of certain targeted or marginalized groups to have their rights be respected on the one hand, or conversely, the justification that's given for wrongdoing that occurs, that's normalized, is in order to maintain a certain form of pervasive structural inequality when that's under threat or being contested. 
So the first two circumstances can characterize lots of communities today that continue to be communities um, experiencing conflict or under repressive regimes. So what characterizes transitional communities um, is the addition of two other sets of circumstances. So one is what I call serious existential uncertainty. So here what I'm picking out is the fact that during periods of transition, the future political trajectory becomes seriously in doubt. So on the one hand, you have um, indicators of promise of the cessation of conflict or an ending of repression. Saddam Hussein is toppled. A peace agreement is signed in a particular ceremony between representatives of the Colombian government and of the FARC. So there's an indicator of an ending of a period of conflict and repression coupled with uncertainty as to whether the aspiration that that peace agreement or that ending of a regime had will in fact be realized. So doubts as to whether a peace agreement is in fact permanent or represents a temporary cessation of violence that will resume when certain conditions hold, whether the ending of repression is going to be met with robust democratization or will be met instead with perhaps one set of elections followed by the resumption of a different kind of, of, of regime of repression um, that may take the same or different form. And so part of what undergirds um, this uncertainty is just the fact that many transitions that are attempted fail, that you don't see a cessation of conflict, that you don't see robust democratization, and so um, the signaling of an end may not in fact be the end in many cases. And what this means subjectively for citizens navigating periods of transitions, as well as for international observers, is that it's hard to know what the narrative is to tell about unfolding events. And it's hard for citizens when deliberating about what they're gonna do to know how to frame their action within the longer term trajectory of a political community. So in terms of an analog, you might think of discussions about Brexit and what will happen in the elections in December. Who knows, right? So different narratives might unfold with greater or lesser credibility, but it's that kind of uncertainty about we don't genuinely know where a community is heading um, that is characteristic of many transitions in many places. The final circumstance is what I call um, fundamental uncertainty about authority. And this has two aspects to it. During periods of transition, when you don't yet have um, democracy consolidated or peace maintained, you can often have different grounds for authority that coexist at once. That someone standing as a member of an important liberation organization grounds their authority to govern in particular ways, coupled with the attempt to establish more procedural norms for having authority to be in certain positions of power, have a particular standing within a community. The second dimension is that insofar as transitional justice processes are processes that aim to deal with past wrongs, the question of why the state has the standing to be the one in charge of or governing these processes becomes fundamentally an issue. Because the state is not, as in most accounts of theories of punishment that philosophers articulate, for example, not a neutral arbiter with respect to the wrongs that are being taken up, but often one of the parties that's potentially being held to account, representatives or state actors. And also the fact that the state is in a context in which the values that it represented are in need of repudiation. 
not in need of reinforcement. And that's part of what a transition is attempting to do. So how do we think about the, the conditions for the legitimacy of particular processes, and in particular state actors being the ones who have the legitimate authority to run these processes, becomes a recurring question and issue. Okay. So I've um, given a sketch of some of the, the particular places that I'm, I'm talking about um, of interest and what I call the circumstances of justice that characterize at a certain level of abstraction communities that are confronting questions and debates about how to think about the justifiability of choices with respect to how legacies of wrongdoing will be dealt with. I now want to turn to three particular questions that come up concerning the justifiability of processes of transitional justice that are selected and sort of explain why these become such recurring and pressing challenges. So, the first challenge is what I call the challenge of uh, shaking hands with the devil. Um, so here, the worry is that to begin conversations that could possibly lead to a transition, let alone continue engagement once a process of transition has been undertaken and what that form of engagement will look like, when you're dealing with groups that are responsible for heinous wrongdoing or are implicated in the maintenance of structural inequality, the question of whether deciding to engage will ultimately serve to legitimize those who are properly viewed as illegitimate, either organizations or individuals, becomes profoundly fraught. So Nelson Mandela in his autobiography talking about the decision to engage in negotiations with the National Party and the South African government in order to um, attempt to end apartheid and transition to democracy flags the concerns that, the, that this raised in this way. We had been fighting white minority rule for three quarters of a century. We had been engaged in an armed struggle uh, for more than two decades. It was clear to me that military victory was a distant, if not impossible, dream. It was time to talk. But this would be extremely sensitive. The government asserted over and over again that we were a terrorist organization of communists and that they would never talk to communists or terrorists. This was National Party dogma. The ANC, the African National Congress, asserted over and over again that the government was fascist and racist and that there was nothing to talk about until they unbanned the ANC, unconditionally released all political prisoners, and removed troops from the townships. So both you can see views with respect to the illegitimacy of those with whom there was a, a thought about engaging in deliberation. So when it comes to this particular question about the decision to shake hands with the devil, one point I want to make is that to some extent engagement is ineliminable. The, the, the choice not to engage is not a practical option for many individuals and communities. Um, and this is true even when you have decisive victory and not, as in the case of South Africa, a negotiated transition of a particular kind. So even looking at Rwanda in the post-genocide context, the practical option for Tutsis not to engage with the Hutu minority that remained didn't exist. And so even when there was decisive victory there. There are also, moreover, real serious risks that arise from refusing to engage. 
So one risk is that you won't get a transition at all. You'll simply get a continuation of conflict or repression. Um, and the second is that a refusal to engage, especially when it's a blanket refusal, can reflect a failure to take seriously moral nuance as it exists in contexts prior to a transition. That the role played by all members of a government may not be morally the same. Um, and so the failure to think in a sufficiently nuanced manner about degrees of accountability and culpability can be reflected in a blanket refusal of engagement. And here I think about the US widely recognized failed policy with respect to debathification in Iraq post Saddam Hussein, where there was just a refusal to make any distinctions among members who were part of the Ba'ath Party, which had very dire consequences and also, I think, was a failure on its own terms um, of insufficient moral nuance. A refusal to engage, I also think, can often reflect a failure of epistemic humility. So often in the contexts that are of interest, there are deeply incompatible and indeed incommensurable narratives of the nature of the conflict that was at issue. Who were the terrorists and who were the wrongdoers and what are the salient events that need to be addressed? So when I was in Belfast in 1998, prior to the referendum on the Good Friday Agreement, there was a museum exhibit that, had, that was telling the history of the Troubles. So up till 1921, there was a single story and then split. And you had the nationalist and unionist recollections of what had happened, who, has, who had been harmed, who were responsible, where the terrorists lie, and what processes need to focus on in terms of wrongs to take into account. And so, you know, one man's, to take a trope that's often repealed to, one man's terrorist is often another's freedom fighter, and one man's legitimate government is often another's organ of terror. And so, Thinking about how to make sense of this fact is often a constitutive element of thinking about how to navigate transition successfully. And so finally, I want to say that the key question for me is not about whether to engage, but how to engage, and how to do so with integrity. And I think the second and third challenges try to gesture at some of the conditions that need to be satisfied so that engagement isn't compromising. Um, but can be done in a way that's morally defensible and morally justifiable when engagement of some, side, some kind has to happen. So what are the second and third challenges? The second challenge is what I call the challenge or the complaint that's often made that victims have been sold short. And so here, the worry is whatever commitment exists as part of the conditions for transitioning to peace, or as part of the conditions for, for transitioning away from a repressive regime or both, characteristically and increasingly include some commitment for how past wrongs will be dealt with. Um, and that the worry is that those commitments end up failing to do justice to victims. And to sort of give some texture to the, the, the complaint that's often articulated, behind it is, is characteristically not the expectation by victims that full justice or complete justice, however you measure it, will be done. There's a recognition of the constraints within which transitional societies operate, of the fact that full justice may be not on the table given competing priorities that need to be taken up as well. But even granting those recognitions the complaint is levied that what was done was insufficient or no justice at all. And so 
Um, in the South African context, here's a quote kind of articulating the complaint that you find resonating across many different contexts. So, quote, victims have frequently raised the objection that both the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the government have been much more interested in placating perpetrators and than in meeting the needs of victims. In this context, reparations have come to mean much more than a means of support or a kind of recognition of victims of suffering. They have become the unfulfilled answer to the question of whether or not justice has been done at all in the transitional justice process. So that's the second worry, and I'm going to spend some time on that and also on the third worry and when I talk about principled compromises. The third worry is the complaint that rather than being transformative or ushering in or contributing to usher in a new period of profound change, be it in the form of peace or in the ending of problematic uh, forms of repression, what transitional justice processes end up doing is simply entrenching the status quo as it existed prior. So that the worry is that in being so sensitive to the constraints of what is feasible, the practical challenges and constraints um, that are constitutive of a particular transitional moment, um, processes that are committed to ending war or repression just end up reinforcing old patterns of the same. And so Dustin Sharp, in a recent article, so he's a, a political scientist who's done a lot of work, really interesting work on transitional justice. In a new piece in a recent issue of the International Journal of Transitional Justice, he summarizes this worry, this complaint that you hear articulated in the following way. Critics have argued that transitional justice does too little to disturb the post-conflict status quo, treating symptoms rather than causes, that it remains oblivious to the multiple forms of economic, structural, cultural, and everyday and gender-based violence, that it marginalizes local or indigenous conceptions of peace and justice. And the trouble is while transformation, which I defend, may be a useful conceptual prism for thinking about the limitations of mainstream goals and modalities of the field, Taken literally, it is an unprobable, improbable outcome in most transitional justice scenarios, especially, perhaps, in fragile post-conflict societies. And so I think the second and third case, as well as the question of what constitutes engagement with integrity, I think raise general questions about what kind of progress towards achieving justice with respect to victims or changing patterns of interaction um, and not simply entrenching the status quo should be seen as good enough from the perspective of justice. It's very fitting and appropriate that I'm stating in the good enough accommodation. I felt at home. So that's the question, right? What, what should be seen as good enough um, from the perspective of justice when full justice is simply not in the offing nor radical transformation in the moment? And so how do we think about managing or setting expectations that are normatively demanding on the one hand, but not hopelessly utopian on the other? And um, I think the answer to these questions depends on understanding what are the conditions that make 
a compromise, principled or not. Um, and so that's why I want to turn to that question next and how I think about some of the conditions that will inform the principledness or lack thereof of, of compromises. Okay. So I just want to flag first, before it looks like I'm going against what I argued in the introduction of the book that I wrote on transitional justice, there's two ways of thinking about um, compromise um, as it pertains to the choices that are being made for dealing with processes of wrongdoing. So one way compromise is often framed when looking at processes like truth commissions or criminal trials or um, amnesty provisions or a combination thereof or reparations is in terms of a compromise between, put most broadly, justice and reconciliation, where those are conceptualized as distinct values, often values that can be in conflict and where a balance is what needs to be struck there. Um, in, in the book, the cover of which I started this talk with, I defend the claim that transitional justice represents its own form of justice, where its core orienting idea is about justly pursuing societal transformation. And that societal transformation that I talk about is fundamentally about reconciliation in terms of radically repairing relationships between citizens and um, citizens and officials that are damaged. And where doing so justly is by doing so in a way that's sensitive to the demands of perpetrators that we can make of them and the claims of victims. And so from my perspective, compromise comes as internal to dimensions of justice, the dimensions of transitional justice. Thinking about what aspect of relational transformation you're going to prioritize, be it prioritizing establishing conditions for trust or conditions for recognition, or between balancing the claims of victims and the broader societal transformation that you're trying to pursue. So I just want to flag that there, there's different ways of filling out the details of what will be compromised in particular cases. But let me then talk to talk next about the basic criteria for compromises, will be a, which will be applicable to both conceptions. So don't privilege one way of thinking about the compromise at issue over another. Okay. So one thing that seems to be relevant to look at when thinking about the values that are attempting to be realized to some degree or in some balance when it comes to compromises struck by specific processes is in terms of looking at how values have been integrated in a particular choice. Where, um, when we're talking about the integration of, of values, we're not talking about power and power differentials or a balance of power as being what defines or determines how values are realized or not realized in a particular choice for a process. So it can't, the explanation for why the balance was struck here is not reduced to, well, this is what the power differentials look like in a particular community. When we're talking about a principled compromise that involves the integration of values, we're also, and here I'm drawing on something Daniel Weinstock said, we're not talking about compromise as a choice of a third alternative. So after dinner, I want to go to an Italian restaurant, and Helen wants to go to a Thai restaurant, and so instead the Aristotelian society treats me to an Indian restaurant, right? Where it's neither of the above, and you choose a third option that folks can agree on recognizing we've compromised on. So there's something about compromise that requires the integration and to some extent respect for 
values that are competing or in conflict to be realized in the process that's selected. Some degree of accountability, even if full accountability, however you fill that out, is not in the offing. Some degree of recognition of the rights of victims, even if full recognition, however you fill that out, is not going to be achieved. And so we think about integrative <coughs> compromises in this way as finding common ground for values that are in tension insofar as that can be found to exist and finding ways of integrating aspects of positions that are in competition with one another in um, whatever agreement or choice is ultimately made and realized. And so we can also contrast, thirdly, the kind of integration of values that we're talking about here from a mere <coughs> utilitarian balancing. The kind of integrative compromise of, of integration of values that might be involved in compromising is compatible with the thought that some things should not be balanced and limits on what can be compromised, which is something I'll come back to at the end. Um, and so it's not just the strict pursuit of whatever would be most efficient from a utilitarian perspective. So that's one thought. And this, in, in both Jonathan Allen's work on principled compromises and Daniel Weinstock's are sort of articulating this idea of integrating values rather than choosing a third route um, or a strict utilitarian-based calculation. A second thing that seems relevant when it comes to evaluating particular processes that were chosen and the compromise that was made with respect to which victims or which wrongs or which method of accountability or which form of recognition were chosen in a particular case um, seems to be relevant at looking at the reasons for, why, for which compromise was undertaken. And so here again, I'm going to be drawing to some extent and adapting um, some of what Daniel Weinstock says in the context of stable liberal democratic politics. But first, what's in the background here is Simon Kabulia May's worry that there can never be principled reasons for compromising. That insofar as you have the morally correct standard for what, for example, justice demands with respect to dealing with perpetrators or wrong, of wrongdoing, or what justice requires with respect to the claims of victims, or what transformation mandates when it comes to overhauling relationships among citizens, that there can only ever be pragmatic reasons for compromise. Right? In the face of certain constraints that unless you compromise, you won't achieve your objective, pragmatic reasons to do less than what you think is morally correct may exist. But those reasons don't count as principled reasons for compromise. So Weinstock wants to suggest, and I think he's right, in the, again in the context of liberal democratic politics, that there can indeed be principled reasons for compromising um, in the face of certain disagreement about what is best moving forward. And I just want to flag three of the reasons that he highlights, which I think have a special salience in the context of transitions. So one reason is um, a reason, he says, for op overcoming epistemic limitations in the, that every democratic citizen has um, with respect to how they're viewing a particular issue or question that's being discussed or considered with respect to public policy. And so I think this kind of principled reason for compromise points to the need for the kind of similar epistemic humility or openness to recognition that those with whom one has been deeply in conflict have an incommensurable but not necessarily completely indefensible understanding of the nature of the conflict and who 
was harmed through it and who were indeed um, perpetrators. And so um, a willingness to compromise and find middle ground by, for example, hoping, holding perpetrators of both sides of a conflict to account as the Special Jurisdiction for Peace in Colombia mandates, as was controversially part of the process of the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, might be one way in which this sort of epistemic humility is realized. A second reason that he offers is that a willingness to compromise can itself reflect a commitment to being part of a democratic community that a willingness to build bridges with one fellow citizens, part of what that can mean or require is a willingness not to press one's point even when one could in the face of disagreement with fellow citizens. So it's not power or pragmatic constraints that are shaping a willingness to show a certain degree of restraint, but rather a, democratic, a commitment to a certain kind of democratic community and democratic relationship with one's citizens. And finally, he articulates the ways in which consequentialist considerations might themselves also be um, principled in terms of compromise. So when a refusal to compromise does indeed threaten potentially the realization of a value that you cherish, that can be not just a pragmatic, but itself a principled reason to compromise in the first place. And I think the risks of refusing to do so are to some extent on display in Colombia right now with the current president, whose deep commitment and objections to the form of accountability that the Special Jurisdiction for Peace has realized has led to a series of legal challenges to its structure, has led to um, a desire to defund certain mechanisms that have been established to deal with wrongs of the past, and you see realized a genuine risk to the achievement of peace or any measure of accountability at all, insofar as the functioning of the special jurisdiction of peace is undermined through these decisions and choices, and indeed the stability of the final agreement itself. So I think we can point to not only looking at how values are integrated and struck demands for accountability and demands um, for recognition on the part of victims, demands for broader societal transformation and change in relationships, but also the reasons that are behind and articulated for why a particular compromise was selected on appealing again to the grounds that I've just mentioned. So I'm, I'm, I'm almost done. Final thing, so I think there's one additional criteria that we need to add um, to the criteria that we have so far in thinking through what it means for a compromise to be principled. So criteria one and two, the criteria that looks at the extent to which values have been integrated in a manner that balances them correctly or finds common ground when that's possible, and that looks to the reasons for the sake of which compromise was undertaken, both implicitly assume that you have val values indeed being part of what's struck in the balance. But the complaint of victims and the challenge of entrenching the status quo is precisely in many cases challenging that assumption. So the complaint is not just often that not enough justice has been done, but rather that no justice whatsoever has been achieved with the processes that were selected through victims, uh, for victims, or uh, processes of accountability for perpetrators. And so um, to rebut a complaint that no justice has been done at all, we first have to establish what it would mean to do justice, even in a minimal sense, 
to victims or justice to perpetrators or justice for a broader community. And there are certain facts about transitional societies that make this complaint about the absence of any value being realized at all especially acute. So there's widely recognized risks of moral failure with processes that are selected to deal with past wrongs. So a criminal justice process of trial and punishment, rather than being a mechanism of retribution, can instead be seen as a mere mechanism of victor's justice. A process for dealing or for offering reparations to victims, rather than seen as a meaningful attempt at repairing harm that victims have suffered and acknowledging that they were wronged, can be seen as efforts to silence victims and to get them to go away and rather not press their further complaints. Or truth commissions, rather than documenting in a form that will lead to robust accountability and change, the history and the conditions that made possible patterns of wrongdoing, the worry is they become mere words on paper that someone puts in a drawer and doesn't make any difference for what happens in a community thereafter. So risks that processes, again, that philosophers just presume you can give an account of the justice of reparations, that they won't be seen that way as mechanisms of justice at all, though the same process can be framed in certain ways. Reparations can be mechanisms of justice. And part of what leads to the skepticism about whether justice is done at all in these processes is a function of the, the fact that transitions op often are occurring against a background context of impunity, the failure of there to be any meaningful accountability in the past for wrongdoing that took place, which is part of what explains its normalization, and an experience of injustice on the part of victims insofar as they try to seek justice for the wrongs that they've been um, subjected to in the form of denying the, the validity of their experience or dismissing the concerns and complaints that they have, targeting them for reprisal instead of trying to repair the harms that they've experienced. So there's a real pressing skepticism about the justice of anything that's done that characterizes transitions and to which an, off, an answer has to be given um, in addition to showing that once you're in the game of there being values that are in play, having those values struck in the right way. And so I think a way of trying to think through this question that's helpful is by drawing on a structural analogy that Lon Fuller provided in his discussion of the rule of law. So Lon Fuller very famously argued that law has a certain function. It's about governance of conduct on the basis of legal rules. Um, that there are eight conditions that legal systems need to satisfy in, in order for that governance of conduct by law to be possible. So one of the conditions is congruence. There has to be a mapping between what declared rules say and what happens on the ground. Rules can't be radically at odds with actual practice. Publicity, so that if I'm going to govern my conduct, by legal rules, I have to know what the rules are, and I have to know them ahead of time, so prospectivity, getting at these intuitive ideas of what are the conditions that you need to have in place for governance of conduct by rules to be possible at all. What Fuller says, interestingly, is that there are two perspectives we can take with respect to these criteria, the criteria of prospectivity and congruence and um, clarity and non-contradiction. One is the perspective of what he calls the morality of duty, where here there's a threshold consideration at issue, that societies have to mean to a certain degree of threshold 
these conditions for law to be said to exist at all as a form of governance, absent a thir certain threshold level of prospectivity or publicity, what you're talking about is not a system of law at all, but failure. So the complaint here is a wor or the worry here is one of failure in achieving what you set out to achieve. But that above that threshold, we can talk about greater or worse realization of respect for the rule of law, more or less robust satisfaction of the criteria of publicity or congruence between what the rules demand and what officials do in their actual conduct, or prospectivity. And so here the shortcoming is not necessarily one of failure, but greater or lesser degrees of excellence in what is achieved. And so I think this suggests that analogously, when we're thinking about the values that are at issue in compromise when it comes to justice being done to victims or accountability demands on perpetrators or achievement of degrees of change when it comes to the terms for interaction among citizens, that we can also analogously think about identifying where the threshold lies below which what you're talking about is not justice or acknowledgement at all, but something different altogether and above which we can talk about greater or lesser degrees of acknowledgement that are given for those who are victims or greater or lesser degrees of accountability, but we're talking about accountability when, we're, when it, it comes to dealing with perpetrators. Um, and so then, you know, has a value been promoted at all? And then insofar as we can make the claim that it has, then the business of thinking about the values that are in balance and how the compromise was struck and what the reasons for it are kick in. Um, so I'll just end with a very speculative, so you can help me figure out less speculatively how to think about this, the question of how to think through the articulation of these thresholds. I think we can draw some um, wisdom from how Fuller himself talks about um, the, the question of threshold with respect to the rule of law, which is thinking about what the point of responding to victims is, be it acknowledgement, be it repair, and it, whether we can find a unifying point of all of those things. And then criteria that would be indicative of whether acknowledgement has in fact been achieved um, before going on to think about whether a threshold satisfaction of that criteria has been attained. And Fuller also helpfully here says there's ineliminably context-specific judgment that needs to be made when evaluating legal systems on the one hand, or I'm suggesting these criteria on the other, to determine credibly whether or not acknowledgement at the threshold level has or has not been achieved. And I think the last thing that's absolutely critical is to think about whose perspectives are shaping both the articulation of the point of dealing with victims as well as the criteria or indication of whether or not that point has been realized at the threshold level or not, um, so as to avoid duplicating patterns of marginalization and exclusion that are characteristic of relationships from the past. Um, so I'll end here with a quote um, that, that gives me inspiration as I try to think about what to do next um, in, in trying to build through or flesh out some of these ideas, and that's with Fuller, who says, deciding where duty uh, um, ought to leave off, ought off is one of the most difficult tasks of social philosophy. Into its solution, an element of judgment must enter, and individual differences of opinion are inevitable. But what is being argued here 
is that we should face the difficulties of this problem and not run away from them under the pretext that no answer is possible. So thank you.